The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Chester Arthur, the dirty politician who shocked the nation with an honest presidency. As VP, he was considered harmless with an inconsequential role. But when Garfield was shot, he suddenly found himself in the top job. The country was full of doubt and fear over what this man with a terrible reputation might do. But the weight of presidential responsibility actually turned him around fixing much of the corruption that he once took advantage of. The all-American redemption story of the gentleman boss, Chester Arthur, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Helping us understand the improbable 21st POTUS, Chester Arthur, is author Scott Greenberger. He's written for the Boston Globe, New York Times, Washington Post, GQ, Politico, the list goes on and on. Currently, he's the executive editor of a news website called Stateline. In addition to all of that, he's written a terrific book on Chester Arthur called The Unexpected President, The Life and Times of Chester Arthur. Scott, we're thrilled to have you join us here on American POTUS. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much. Scott, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this book uh, about a president I really didn't know that much about before I dived in. So th- to get us started, can you tell us a bit about Arthur's background? What was his family like? Where did he grow up? Where did he go to school? Sure. Uh, so Chester Arthur's uh, father, William Arthur, was an Irish immigrant. He was born in 1796. He was a, a very a talented and determined Student mastered Latin and Greek, earned a college degree in Belfast, but uh, his his family lacked money and connections, and so, uh, like many many others, he decided to emigrate to the New World first for Canada. He lived for a time in Quebec, and then uh, moved uh, or started in Stansted, Quebec. Moved to a, a nearby town and worked as a teacher while he studied the law, and that's where he met uh, the woman who would become Chester Arthur's mother, Malvina Stone. Uh, who was American. She was a 19-year-old girl at that time from Vermont, just over the border. And she was from old New England stock. Her grandfather had served as a corporal in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. They were married in 1821, and they moved to Burlington, Vermont, where William uh, thought he could make money as a teacher while he continued to study law. But that's where his life uh, abruptly changed course. New England at that that time was in the throes of the Second Great Awakening, a religious... uh, Awakening and at a revival meeting in Burlington, he uh, was called uh, to the pulpit and he left behind his legal aspirations and his law career and became a free Baptist preacher. And he was ordained in 1828. A short time after that, he accepted an offer to lead a congregation in Fairfield, Vermont, where in 1829 his son Chester was born. Now, I think it's, you know, it's important in terms as we sort of dig into Chester Arthur and his character and his amazing transformation. His father, William Arthur, was a very 
uh, rigid Baptist, very rigid in his beliefs. Um, he believed that that all of Adam's descendants had inherited his fallen nature and they had a natural inclination to sin. And and he warned his parishioners that, that if they didn't repent and believe, if they if they drank or fornicated, they'd they'd forfeit their chance to be saved and would be condemned to eternal damnation. So that was the kind of the, the sort of household that Chester grew up in. His mother, um, we know less about her, but according to descriptions from um uh, the diary of Chester Arthur's sister. She was a, a much softer touch, a uh, very gentle uh, person who was really the opposite um, of her husband. So anyway, Chester Arthur was born in 1829. And because Elder Arthur, in addition to being very rigid in his religious beliefs, was a, a staunch abolitionist. And at that time, even in the North, in the early 19th century, abolitionism was quite controversial. And, and as a result of of those beliefs, he he sort of had to hopscotch from from uh, parish to parish and congregation to congregation as he got kicked out of one and, and moved to another. Eventually, they ended up in Schenectady, where Chester Arthur attended uh, basically what was high school, and then and then later as a sophomore became a student at Union College in Schenectady, which is st- still a school in Schenectady. Interestingly enough, one of his classmates at Union College was uh, James Roosevelt, whose son Franklin would. Uh, later go on to some to some fame. Anyway, so Chester, uh, who was known to his classmates as as Chet, was uh, kind of a always, from the very beginning, sort of a good time Charlie. He uh, was known as a prankster. He, he uh, in one instant, he threw the, the college bell into the Erie Canal. He <laughs> got in trouble for carving his name on into college buildings and skipped chapel and uh, had wrote in a book and had to pay a hefty a hefty a fifty cent yeah. fine at one point when he was a senior, and there he studied. Uh, Union actually was one of the first schools in the U.S. to offer uh, courses in natural science and engineering, but uh, but Arthur opted for the traditional classical curriculum. So he studied uh, Horace and Thucydides and Cicero and Homer in the original Greek and Latin. Again, he was very popular with his classmates, uh, very good looking, uh, and this would be a you know, something that was noted of him throughout his life. He was very handsome and uh, was elected in one of the fraternities and and um, was in the debating club and and ranked pretty high in his class, though he wasn't the most diligent uh, <laughs> student. And after graduation, he decided to follow uh, his father's original career path, and, and he set out to become a lawyer. He uh, had spent his vacations during college teaching school in a nearby town to help cover his uh, tuition and expenses. And after graduating from Union, he, he did that while um, studying at um, the State and National Law School in Boston Spa. Now, back in those days, you didn't have to complete uh, three years of law school or um, or sometimes even even go to college to become a lawyer. And uh, so anyway, he, he did that. And then after working as a uh, teacher and principal and studying as a lawyer, he had the opportunity to uh, moved to New York City, where one of his father's friends, uh, Erastus uh, Culver, had opened a uh, law firm in Brooklyn, uh, also a staunch abolitionist. And so um, in uh, 1853, Arthur decided to uh, take his chances in the big city. So I was interested in that that short period when he was a teacher and a principal. And I realized, as I thought about that, several presidents, in the at least in the 19th century, there have been a couple, I guess, in the 20th. I know LBJ taught at a lower level elementary school. He what, did, yeah. What, was, was Arthur a good teacher? Well, there's one story that uh, survives of him being uh, from his time as a teacher where he was, um, I suppose it's 
related by one of the t- kids who were in the class, but there was a troublemaking kid who was sort of firing marbles every time uh, Arthur would turn his back. And, and this, uh, this particular kid or this particular group of kids had chased out, uh, already had chased out several teachers. And Arthur uh, was able to uh, bring this kid and his, his buddies to heal um, and, and earned a lot of respect uh, for doing that. But I think he always... You know, he had these larger ambitions, and he knew that he couldn't fulfill his dreams and his ambitions um, in upstate New York. The place to do that was uh, was New York City. So he goes to New York. He studies law. He gets into the legal profession. Uh, how did he make a name for himself in that profession once he moved to the uh, to the big city? Well, I mean, first he was, uh, you know, he was a, a lonely guy who just uh, had moved there. His friends were still in upstate New York, and. Um, uh, you know, he spent uh, a lot of time by himself, didn't have a lot of money. Uh, in fact, there's a letter, uh, one of the few letters that survives uh, from Chester Arthur from this period where he wrote to one of his, his friends uh, back in uh, upstate that uh, he says, I sometimes get very weary and tired of city life, and I think I would not like to pass my days here after all. Yet if one is ambitious and makes it the great object of life to succeed, there is no doubt, but this is the place. So he was eager to make a reputation for himself, to make a name for himself, and he and he was handed a golden opportunity in 1855. Uh, and actually, this was a, an incident in 1854 when a woman, um, a young uh, black woman, uh, 27 years old, who taught, uh, she was also a teacher and was an organist at church. She and her friends tried to board a streetcar that had been segregated. Some of the streetcars in New York were segregated at that point. They were run by private companies. And she was late for church and decided she didn't have time to wait for the special car that had the placard in the window that said it was for colored riders. And and so she uh, she and her friend hopped on board the, um, the white car. And uh, after a a cough, she had a confrontation with the conductor and with the driver, and eventually it looked like uh, she'd be allowed to stay. But uh, once they saw a police officer on the street, they had her thrown off the streetcar. And uh, this was after a, a confrontation that actually got violent, so it was very heated. And um, so um, once that happened, or the next day rather, she told uh, other members of her congregation what had happened and told her father, and they were enraged by how she'd been treated, and they and they wanted to sue the streetcar line, and they hired um, Arthur's firm to handle the case, and he, as a, one of the junior attorneys, was was assigned to the case, and um, he won the case in, in uh, February 1855. Uh, he argued, uh, point out to the judge that there was a recently enacted state law that held common carriers such as the streetcar lines liable for the acts of their uh, agents and employees. And as I said, this had been a violent confrontation. And um, and uh, he won the case. The jury awarded her $225. She had been seeking $500, but that was still a, a significant victory uh, and added uh, court costs. And though the case didn't immediately desegregate all of New York streetcar lines, since as I said, some were, or they were owned by different companies, it set that process in motion. And, and in fact, for years afterward, uh, a group called the Colored People's Legal Rights Association celebrated the anniversary of the verdict. So it was a big deal mm, um, that he won this case. So not long after he moves there, he starts making his name in New York, the Civil War begins. What role did Arthur play during that war? And how did his role in that war and his views on slavery affect his relationship with his wife, who was from Virginia, who had family in Virginia. Right. Well, the other thing he did to try and make him uh, make a name for himself in, in New York was to get involved in uh, politics. Uh, first, um, uh, 
uh, Whig politics very early. But then uh, in 1854, the Republican Party was created in the state of New York, and he became more and more involved in, in politics. He worked as an inspector at uh, a polling place and worked in the campaign of uh, John Fremont, uh, who lost to James Buchanan in 1856. He was the first Republican candidate for president. So as part of that, as start of that, a part of that process of being involved in politics and trying to make a name for himself, he also joined the New York State Militia and was developed a relationship with a guy who was a leading Republican named Edwin Morgan, uh, who became governor in 1858. Uh, in 1860, he was reelected. They only had two-year terms then. And he formed a, what he called a general staff, which just seems strange to us now for a governor to have this. But it was sort of a, a, uh, a core of young men outfitted in uniforms and, and gold braid who, uh, whose job it was to sort of appear with the, with the governor at official ceremonies. Purely decorative, but a good, a good connection for Chester. And then, uh, of course, in 1861, the Confederate uh, batteries opened fire on Fort Sumter and, and the Civil War began. And all of a sudden, his role became uh, quite serious. It went from being a purely decorative role to, uh, to a very substantial role, because at that time, uh, it was up to the individual governors when President Lincoln uh, proclaimed several days after the attack on Fort Sumner that there was an insurrection in the South, and he wanted uh, he called for seventy five thousand uh, Union soldiers to crush it. But it was up to the individual governors of the northern states to recruit and equip those troops. And um, so Morgan tapped uh, Arthur for this very important job uh, of being first of all made him a brigadier general, and then assigned him to be the state quartermaster general's New York City representative. And so he was responsible for feeding and housing and clothing and equipping um, thousands of enlisted men from all over, uh, from New York City, all over the state, but also from New England, since the, the regiments from that region were coming to New York on their way south. So it was a very important job. He, he awarded contracts and audited expenditures, and he quickly became an expert in rations and blankets and ammunition, ammunition all that kind of stuff. He also uh, supervised the construction of barracks in Central Park and on Staten Island. So uh, very important job, and he did it so well that uh, Morgan promoted him a couple of times, giving him more responsibility. He became uh, Inspector General, and then he was Quartermaster General for the state of New York. Um, and in that job, he had to inspect forts and defenses throughout New York, and and he actually helped come up with a plan to block New York Harbor uh, in the event of an attack by the British Navy, which seemed likely uh, at the time. And uh, so he, this was a time, I mean, during the Civil War, there were a lot of people in positions like Arthur's who used the position to enrich themselves. I mean, with all these contracts and all this money sloshing around, there were plenty of opportunities to, to skim some off the top, but he didn't do that. He served with integrity and uh, earned the respect of, of Morgan and many others uh, with his service um, as uh, during the war. Now, you mentioned um, the relations with his wife. He had, uh, shortly before taking this job, he had uh, met and um, become engaged to and married a, a woman named um, Elizabeth Herndon, known as Nell. And she was came from an old Virginia family. She'd grown up in D.C. And, you know, coincidentally, in fact, she, she worshipped and sang in the choir at the same church where Dolly Madison was, who was oh, 70 years wow. old. It's such a strange coincidence. Yeah. But so they, uh, she and her, her mother, uh, so Chester's mother-in-law, were, were uh, openly sympathetic to the South. I mean, the mother-in-law especially. Uh, Nell had to sort of hold her tongue, given her husband's position. But she clearly sympathized with the South, and many of her relatives were fighting for the Confederate 
Confederates. So it was a, a delicate, uh, difficult time for them um, as a couple. Uh, and in fact, at one point uh, in the spring of 1862, Union troops occupied Fredericksburg, which is where her family lived. And, uh, you know, the residents there, of course, were hated the fact that the Yankees were walking their streets and, you know, uh, oppressing them. And around the same time, Arthur had to go to Fredericksburg to review the Union troops there. And, and he actually paid a visit to the family to see how they were holding up. And, um, you know, it was a delicate, <laughs> a delicate line. He had to, <laughs> a narrow line he had to walk there. So uh, yeah. it was tough. I think that would define awkward, I do believe. It was awkward. At the very least, awkward. yes, that's right. Yeah, people talk about uh, at, during that time visiting with the Arthurs at their uh, their apartment in the city, and uh, Chester would try to lighten the mood by joking about uh, his little rebel wife, but there was, definitely <laughs> a, there was a chill in the household that sure. uh, visitors could detect easily. Yeah. So Arthur distinguished himself during the war, and as you said, had been in, involved in politics. He made some really important friends in the political world including Thurlow Weed, William Tweed, and most importantly, later in his life, Roscoe Conkling, three famous political bosses who oversaw powerful political machines. So could you just tell us a bit about Weed and Tweed and Conkling and how Arthur entered their political orbits? Sure. And all three were very colorful characters. Yes. Fun, yes. fun to read and, and write <laughs> about. So let's starting with Weed, who really was the first political boss uh, for New York State and also sort of the prototype of these guys who were to come. So during this period before the war, where Arthur was uh, becoming more involved in Republican politics, that's how he, he um, uh, got close to and, and got to know Thurlow Weed, um, who was the publisher of the Albany evening journal but beyond that and more importantly he was the undisputed boss of the what was then the Whig party later the republicans and he was a guy who prided himself on developing relationships with legislators uh, in Albany of both parties and and he actually boasted that he he knew every member of the legislature over the course of like 30 years he was known as the wizard of the lobby and he was kind of an interesting combination of uh cynicism and generosity i mean he he was known for uh, helping new immigrants who'd been uh, duped by uh, so-called runners as soon as they got off the boat. It was at the Castle Garden Depot, which uh, preceded Ellis Island as the place where immigrants came in. So he would help you know, downtrodden immigrants and get them out of trouble. He also was known as a thoughtful friend who would, who would always uh, share financial advice, particularly with women, and brought them books and flowers when they weren't feeling well. He'd grown up in, a, in an America, of course, that was very different from the America of um, that mid-19th century. You know, when he, when he was born, America was a country of, uh, you know, it was, ag- it was agricultural. It had f- a few fledgling factories, but not, not much. Primitive roads. Um, now, of course, its manufacturing uh, was growing exponentially to the point where it exceeded its agricultural output. Uh, there were railroads and shipping and all kinds of opportunities. And during this transformation in New York, especially, uh, business and politics sort of came together for the first time. I mean, this stuff sounds familiar to us now, but this is where it really started, where a guy uh, like Weed sort of had, you know, he had contacts with bank presidents and railroad tycoons and merchants and ship owners and lobbyists and speculators. And and the way this worked was that, you know, the businessmen in, in exchange for their interests being represented in the legislature, uh, provided a steady source of money for campaigns, and um, and Weed would would solicit their views on on legislation that affected them—railroads, steamboats, wharfs, anything else that might affect their 
their fortunes. And one of the main responsibilities that we'd had as the boss was to uh, to keep the machine humming was to distribute government jobs to the party faithful, patronage jobs. So everything from at the bottom of the patronage pyramid, you had jobs like laborer and street sweeper and bell ringer. But then moving up, there were policemen and health wardens and commissioners of deeds. And he could help Republicans get elected as a local alderman or a mayor. So he was this was this was the beginning of what became known as the spoils system, where people who were loyal to a political party received jobs uh, when that political party was victorious. And then once they were in those jobs, they were expected to maintain the party, keep the party uh, in, in control, and and by the way, keep their own jobs by by giving campaign contributions, which were known as voluntary assessments, but were of course anything but voluntary. And you know, Weed didn't. Uh, he he wasn't ashamed of this. From his perspective, he he argued that um, you know, rotating public jobs in this way, as opposed to having a professional civil service, was fair and democratic. It gave everyone a chance. It, it of course helped the Republican machine, and it also was a way for people, many you know, recent immigrants, to sort of move up in life. And you know, interestingly enough, he you know, while he his dealings in Albany did make him rich. He always insisted that what he was doing, the legislation he was pushing, was always for the public good. As far as he was concerned, you know, more railroads, uh, you know, more um, factories, more transportation. This was all good for not just his his clients or the or the people that he was connected with. It was good for the country. And so, you know, he was not a guy who was shy about what he was doing. He felt that people. Who, who were who objected uh you know that this was not what the founders had imagined or this wasn't the way politics was supposed to work were just were naive um and uh so arthur learned a lot by watching you know he he started to uh accept this idea that handing out government jobs to to the party faithful even if they were inexperienced or you know probably you know couldn't do the job very well or using brass knuckle tactics to win elections. That was just, that was the game of politics. And that was how he, he learned the game. So that's what he, that's what he thought uh, was normal. Tweed also, many of us have heard of, I think many people have heard of boss Tweed. He, he interestingly enough was a Democrat who headed the Tweed ring, uh, the corrupt political machine that ruled New York city from the uh, like mid 1860s to early 1870s. And he also, like Weed, I mean, he helped, uh, the city was growing at a tremendous pace, many new immigrants, and uh, the city and the municipal government as it existed just wasn't able to provide housing and sanitation, healthcare and employment for all these people. And he and his henchmen stepped into the breach. And while they did it, they plundered the city coffers of millions of dollars. They enriched themselves through you know, taking a cut of public works contracts and horse, you know, franchises for horse car lines and ferry companies and all that kind of stuff. And he also was not uh, afraid. In fact, uh, you know, uh, was very uh, brazen in um, mobilizing his supporters and and corrupt election officials to stuff ballot boxes, intimidate voters, uh, miscount votes. I mean, this was again, this was just the way things were done. So Arthur's connection to Tweed was that uh, he had been associated after the war uh, with a guy named Tom Murphy uh, after after the war, um, or rather when the war was still going on, but after Morgan had lost uh, the governor who had appointed Arthur. Arthur lost his job or resigned his commission because he didn't want to uh, serve a Democratic governor. And he um, became uh, friendly with a guy named Tom Murphy, who was a an unscrupulous hatter is how he was uh, described. He sold he and he wasn't the only one, but he sold uh, 
hats to the Union Army that were a little below uh, a little below uh, par. Interestingly enough, the Brooks Brothers, the, the same Brooks Brothers who we know today, also got in trouble for that for uniforms that uh, disintegrated in the rain. So a lot of people were trying to to cut corners and make money during the war. Anyway, so uh, this was one of uh, Arthur's connections, and um, Murphy was very close to Boss Tweed, and he. Uh, asked Boss Tweed to give Chester Arthur a patronage job, basically a job uh, as a counsel to the New York City Tax Commission, which was probably a job that didn't entail very much work, uh, but paid a lot of money for Arthur and, and put yet another Tweed loyalist uh, or a guy who would do his bidding in a, in a powerful position. So that was his connection to Tweed. Roscoe Conkling was the most important of the three to, in Arthur's life, and I think probably the most colorful and a guy that most people haven't heard of. Um, he had a lot in common with Arthur. He also grew up in upstate New York uh, with a stern father. His father was a judge. Both of them loved uh, clothes. They were careful dressers. But unlike Arthur, who was really people person, he loved telling jokes and, and hanging out late and drinking and all that kind of stuff. Conkling was a a politician who didn't really like people very much. He uh, he was a terrific orator and, and was known for that. And he was a very impressive looking person. He was tall and very handsome, and as I mentioned, very well dressed. Uh, but he was an odd an odd person in terms of uh, a person who wanted to go into politics. I mean, he he uh, he loathed tobacco smoke. Uh, would open you know would make a point of opening the window when someone was smoking, which at the time was really something. He, uh, as a lawyer, uh, as a young lawyer, um, he would like to, he, first of all, he would wrap up his law books in newspaper uh, uh, that he had on the table so no one would know, the opposition wouldn't know what he was consulting. But he also had a habit of, uh, once he had finished presenting his case, he would open, very conspicuously open a newspaper and start reading like that was all the uh, jury needed to hear. That, that, <laughs> uh, so he was, you know, he made... He made a lot of enemies, but he was a very impressive person. And as I said, he was a great speaker, which mattered a lot back then. Uh, he actually, you know, he could speak for two or three hours from memory. And he was a voracious reader. He loved poetry and especially Byron. He loved Shakespeare and Milton. And he um, he took great pride in his, in his speeches. And um, he was elected to Congress and then, um, and then to the Senate. And he, the story of how he became boss is that he, of New York State, that is, he um, at, at a, once uh, Thurlow Weed was about seventy-two, starting to get older, and kind of his power was waning. Uh, Conkling, this is when President Grant uh, was in office. Conkling uh, maneuvered or humiliated his chief rival for the job, another senator named Reuben Fenton, on the floor of the Senate, and uh, sort of won uh, Grant's favor and therefore became the boss of the Republican Party. And, and uh, interestingly enough, that fight, as some of the other fights we're going to talk about in a moment, had to do with the New York Custom House. And he had he helped Grant to uh, get his preferred nominee through the Senate for the Custom House. And, and by virtue of doing that, he ended up becoming the new boss of the, of the Republican Party. The other interesting thing about him, and you'll see the pictures, is he had a a reddish blonde curl that he liked to twirl into the center of his forehead. <laughs> and all the cartoons you see of him make, make uh, that's always very uh, figures very prominently. Uh, he he was <laughs> he was really a character. He uh, he was known as for being a great poker player. He always carried a pistol. He wrote his personal letters in um, in mauve ink. And apparently had the handwriting of a of a schoolgirl is what people said. Um, 
And, you know, he also, and, and women loved him. Whenever he spoke in the Senate gallery, the, uh, the ladies' gallery was filled um, with, his, uh, with his fans. So very interesting guy. And he and Chester Arthur be intertwined from, from that point on. Yeah. Kind of oversized personalities, really, really Absolutely. amazing people. Yeah. So, so you, you referenced this a moment ago. Usually the one thing that history books tell us about Chester Arthur is that he was fired from his post as collector of the New York City Custom House before he made his big political comeback. What was the role of the Custom House, and why was the office of collector there such an important federal position, and what eventually led to Arthur's dismissal from the Custom House by President Hayes? Yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great question. The Custom House uh, figures very prominently in the story of, of Chester Arthur, uh, not just in the you know as I mentioned in the rise of Roscoe Conkling as boss, but uh, Arthur himself. So the Custom House this was of course before uh, there was an income tax, and the uh, Custom House, which was located the New York Custom House, was located in a in a beautiful Greek Revival building down on Wall Street, and it had jurisdiction over the waters and the shores of New York State. Uh, and also most of uh, Hudson and Bergen counties in New Jersey. New York, of course, then as now, was a very important port. At, port. at that point, it was the main port of entry for goods entering the U.S., and the Custom House collected uh, import duties on everything coming in, and this was a huge um, source of, uh, of revenue for the United States at a time when there wasn't an income tax. Um, the New York Custom House collected about 75% of all the nation's import duties at that time. So it was important on its own. But in terms of the political machines of that time, it was important because it was the happened to be the single largest federal office in the nation. And it had hundreds of patronage jobs that the New York political boss, who, who usually was given the um, uh, control of that and control of the who would be collector, that the New York political boss could dole out to loyal supporters. And then, of course, as I mentioned, they, those people once they had jobs could be tapped for campaign cash. So it was a very important uh, source of patronage for the New York Republican Party or, or whichever party was in control, the New York machine. Now, officially, the collector was supposed to record the arrival of the ships and collect the duties. And, and um, you know, that was, you know, again, officially what he was supposed to do. In fact, his main job was to satisfy all of the party leaders who wanted jobs for their supporters. It was a tough, that was the toughest part of the job. Uh, so what happened was, uh, I mentioned at this point, uh, Ulysses S. Grant was president and Murphy, Tom Murphy, the unscrupulous hatter had been uh, appointed collector, but there was this growing political pressure in the country, um, uh, a growing reform movement against the spoil system, against the machines, against corruption. And Murphy was thoroughly corrupt. And eventually, there was too much pressure on him and on Grant. So Grant um, accepted Murphy's resignation in 1871. But he allowed uh, Murphy to choose his successor and Murphy picked his friend, Chester Arthur. So now, all of a sudden, Chester Arthur, having been involved in politics, and, you know, served during the war and uh, done these different things, he now is in a position um, of incredible power. It's also a very lucrative job because in addition to the salary, which was very high for that time, he also, uh, and this was perfectly legal, uh, the collector and the other officers in the custom house were allowed to take a cut of the fines and forfeitures that they uh, levied on the uh, anyone who violated the, the customs rules. So he, uh, in his first year, he made 
about $50,000, which in today's money is about a million dollars. And that was more than the cabinet members or, or Grant or the vice president or anybody else. Now, some of that money he handed over to the party, of course, but he, he had plenty left over to live a very comfortable life. And this is when I think we begin to see Arthur developing the, the uh, expensive tastes and clothes and food and wine that he later uh, became so well known for. And as I said, Conkling, you know, was not really, he was a politician who didn't really like people. And he, he happily left uh, the day-to-day management of the state machine to, to Arthur, who was great at it. He was the kind of guy who loved to stay up late smoking cigars and drinking and, and uh, visiting what uh, one of his uh, later critics, uh, an old uh, college classmate of his, called very questionable resorts in New York City, meaning brothels and bars and all kinds of stuff. So, um, so Arthur has this terrific job. He's making a lot of money. He has a lot of power. He's staying out till all hours of the night, usually didn't show up to work till around one o'clock in the afternoon. Everything's going fine, but Grant's second administration, this this rising tide of corruption, there were all kinds of uh, incidents of corruption in Grant's second administration in particular, and it was only a matter of time really before this ended up uh, sloshing onto the steps of the Custom House, and it did in, in early uh, 1874 when it became known that uh, the Customs officials had strong-armed a, an importing firm that was very well respected um, into paying a, a fine that was illegitimate. Uh, so so that Arthur and the other officers could take a cut. And this turned into a huge scandal. Leaders of the company demanded a congressional investigation. And eventually, the new president uh, elected after Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, who was elected as a reformer and, and as a guy who was pledging to clean up corruption and, and do away with the spoil system, he uh, eventually clashed with Conkling, clashed with the machine politicians, and eventually fired uh, Arthur in the summer of 1878. He was the exact opposite Rutherford Hayes was of of Arthur. He was a guy who was a uh, and and the opposite of Conkling too. I mean, he was a teetotaler. He, uh, you know, Conkling spent his free time uh, cavorting with his mistresses or gambling, and and Hayes uh, and his wife Lucy, who reporters called Lemonade Lucy because she banned alcohol from the White House, were strict Methodists, uh, and uh, you know when they had people over, they would sing from hymn books. They weren't. Uh, playing poker or going to a very questionable resorts. So it was kind of a culture class as well. Uh, but anyway, so here we are, and uh, uh, Arthur having risen to this uh, highest of heights in the machine um, is now uh, without a job. Now he did, he had made enough connections so that he, um, you know, he was a lawyer and he was able to make a good living. But certainly it seemed like his political career was over, that the reform wing of the Republican Party was ascendant and that he would never um, hold political office again. But we know that was not the case. That was not the case. (laughs) In the life of so many improbable twists, after that firing, he, along with Conkling, support Ulysses Grant, who is in, in the mix for maybe having a third term in 1880, but that doesn't happen. And instead, the Republicans nominate James Garfield for president and even more improbably nominate Chester Arthur for vice president, how did he move so quickly from being fired at the custom house 
to the vice presidency. And how did Conkling react to all of this? Yeah, it's an amazing story. That 1880 convention was very highly contested uh, and went on and on and on. I mean, that was a time where there were no primaries, of course. I mean, the, the nominee was actually decided at the convention. And uh, there were many, many ballots, multiple ballots. Um, and eventually, as you say, there was a very strong, well, there was a very strong contingent in favor of a third term for Grant, an unprecedented what would have been at that point an unprecedented third term. And Conkling was leading that effort. He and the other people leading that effort for Grant called themselves the stalwarts. They were stalwart supporters of Grant, the old, you know, the Civil War hero who had done some good things as president, but also, as I said, his second, his second term had really been uh, uh, riven with corruption. So Garfield, this uh, Ohio congressman, emerges as a compromise candidate, but he was definitely not from the stalwart wing of the party. He was from the what was called the half-breed wing of the party, which were the reform reform-minded Republicans who wanted to do away with the spoil system and root out corruption. And so having nominated Garfield, the Republican Party knew that they had to placate Conkling, the very uh, important and powerful boss of the Republican machine, because frankly, they needed New York to win the election. They needed his help in winning New York. New York was the most populous state in the union at that point, had the most electoral votes they could not win the election without New York, and so they needed Conkling. So they figured that a way to placate Conkling was to put his his close lieutenant and ally, Chester Arthur, on the ticket. And they figured, okay, well, yeah, this guy's kind of a, you know, he's a machine politician, he's a clown, but uh, the vice president doesn't do anything anyway. Garfield is young and he's healthy, and you know, frankly, Arthur and and Conkling will do less damage with control of the vice presidency than they would with many other jobs, including the Custom House. So let's give this job um, to Arthur. Uh, So the the, um, Garfield's allies approach uh, Arthur on the floor of the convention, and he's he's shocked, surprised that he, you know, all of a sudden he's, his political career has been resuscitated. So he goes to find Conkling and he finds him strutting, stalking back and forth in this room off the convention, the main convention stage. Irate still that Grant had lost, you know, he thought Garfield was a traitor. And um, so he, at first his reaction is, he says to Arthur, you know, Arthur approaches his mentor and says, it says excitedly, you know, boss, this is terrific. Look, I'm going to be vice president or the nominee at least. And Conkling says, I would, you know, you need to drop that like a hot shoe from a forge or something. You know, I, I don't know. You know, he says, absolutely not. You shouldn't do that. If you do that, you know, we'll never talk again. And Arthur, though, you know, he's surprised and uh, offended, but he um, he holds his ground. He says, you know, I'm going to take this. I'm going to accept this. And I think that eventually you're going to come around. And uh, that's what happened. So he um, he he accepted the nomination and uh, did a lot of work for Garfield during the campaign to help him uh, to be elected. And they were elected. So all of a sudden, Chester Arthur, who, uh, as one person noted that, uh, the only uh, one of the other rivals for the nomination had, had noted to a friend in a letter that the only he was fired from the only political job he ever had, and all of a sudden this guy is now vice president of the United States. Kind of kind of incredible. It is an incredible story. And during their brief service together, Garfield and Arthur, once they're in the White House, they faced constant struggles between those two parts of the Republican Party. How did the president and vice president work or not work together in light of those political battles? Well, 
simply put, they didn't work together. Uh, Conkling still viewed, or uh, Arthur rather, viewed himself as uh, Conkling's lieutenant, as working for um, Conkling. Even though he was vice president of the United States, he thought that he was uh, still a part of the New York Republican machine, and that was his main responsibility. And so from the very beginning, there were these battles, as you say, between the stalwarts and the half-breeds in terms of who Garfield would choose for his cabinet and all this stuff. And uh, Arthur was very squarely on the side of of uh, Conkling. He wanted people from the machine uh, picked, uh, or uh, stalwarts picked for these cabinet jobs. And uh, again and again, as Garfield rolled out the his cabinet picks, the other wing of the party, the Conkling wing of the party, was disappointed. They thought, in fact, that uh, before the election, after the nomination, um, before the campaign started, that they had an agreement from from Garfield that in exchange for the help of the stalwarts to unify the party, that they would give Conkling and, and uh, the machine its way in New York. But Garfield, as it happened, had a very different recollection of that meeting. Uh, in any case, once once he took office, uh, all bets were off. They were at war with each other, and Arthur was on Conkling's side. And the real, the real breakdown came when, um, when again, the custom house job came up and uh, appointed by the president. And the Conkling and his, uh, his people thought they had an agreement that they would get to choose the collector of the custom house, which was incredibly important for all the reasons we've talked about. And Garfield stuck it to them and, and nominated somebody who wasn't just uh, not a Conkling person. He was an enemy of Conkling's. And so in protest, Conkling and the other senator from New York, uh, Thomas Platt, resigned from the Senate in a very dramatic scene. And they were figuring that they would make a point by resigning just to show, uh, to demonstrate in a very dramatic way their displeasure with Garfield. And this, of course, was before uh, the direct election of senators. They figured that they would very quickly, that the legislature in New York would reelect them to the Senate. They will have made their point that the other senators um, would back them because, you know, it was a question of senatorial prerogative in, in choosing um you know, local jobs. Fortunately, they had badly miscalculated because the senators ended up approving Garfield's nomination. They didn't want to go against their new Republican president. And the Conkling and Platt uh, re-election got tied up in uh, and stuck in, um, in Albany in the legislature. And Arthur, despite the fact that he was the vice president of the United States and Garfield's vice president, went up to Albany to help Conkling and the other uh, machine boys uh, to make sure that they ended up, he and Platt made, made it back to the U.S. Senate. So he very publicly was breaking with Garfield and, and to many uh, people was being disloyal and also uh, disgracing his office, uh, many newspapers uh, thought. Uh, and there's famous cartoons actually from Thomas Nass, the, the cartoonist of uh, Garfield, you know, as a boot black shining the boots of Conkling and these other guys rather than uh, doing his job as vice president of the United States. So there was this, uh, this split in the Republican Party just was getting uh, deeper and deeper and more rancorous. It's really fascinating to think if Garfield had survived, if he would have picked Arthur to go for a second term. I think it sounds like that relationship was probably, um, what's the word, irredeemable? Um, I would say so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but we know that, of course, doesn't happen after just 200 days, Garfield is dead, uh, shot, shot, and then dies after an agonizing couple of months. But Arthur, after he becomes president at Garfield's death, surprises the nation. 
according to your analysis, by remembering his principles of his younger days. Can you tell us about this incredible transformation? Why did he change his ways? And how could a man who had made his career based on patronage and working with these corrupt machines now be trusted to lead efforts at reform? Well, it's interesting. You know, I think uh, it's important to note that when Garfield was first shot, nobody, nobody in the country uh, thought that Arthur was going to be anything but what he'd always been or what he had been uh, most recently, which was a machine politician. I mean, the, the Chicago Tribune, I quote them in the book, called um, his uh, the possibility of him ascending to, to the highest office a pending calamity of the utmost magnitude. And uh, the nation... Uh, noted that many people feared that uh, Conkling would run the government as he had long run the machine. And even more disturbing was the suggestion made in in some newspapers that Arthur and Conkling might have had something to do with the assassination of Garfield, because incredibly, the the assassin, uh, Charles Guiteau, who was insane. He also was, though, a disappointed office seeker. He was basically someone who who had been counting in exchange for what he thought was work he did on the campaign to get a spoils job. As I say, he was out of his mind. So he was requesting jobs like, I want to be ambassador to Paris. Uh, You know, I want to be, you know, jobs that he clearly wasn't qualified for. But that was um, one of his motivations for shooting Garfield. And then when he, just after shooting him, when the police grabbed him, he said that he had done it so Arthur would be president and that uh, he did it to heal this rift uh, in the Republican Party. Again, he was he was very confused person, but the idea, this fed into the idea that somehow Arthur and Conkling had put him up to it or you know were involved in the conspiracy. So this feeling combined with the general distaste that a lot of people had for Arthur and his brand of politics anyway was a, a really it had a it had a tremendous impact on Arthur I think during this this period when Garfield was lingering on his what ended up being his deathbed as you note uh, Garfield was shot in July but he didn't die till September so for months the country was watching this and he was up he was down there's actually an excellent book um, by Candace Millard called Destiny of the Republic that talks about uh, the Garfield shooting and the and the terrible medical care he got and in all likelihood he might have survived if he had gotten uh, decent medical care or for the doctors and and had uh, paying attention to what they were doing in Europe already at this point, which was washing their hands before they dug inside someone's uh, body for in search of a bullet. But anyway, so during this period, so Garfield is is lingering the, the country and, and suffering terribly. The country is talking about how Arthur is not qualified, he's unfit, he's corrupt, and might even be involved in the in the crime. This, I think, I think this was the beginning of of Arthur's transformation. Because I think he was just greatly affected by by all of this. I mean, when you imagine what it must be like to have everybody in the country or a lot of people in the country talking about you as if you're a murderer, as if you're, you know, you're the worst thing that that ever happened to the country. I think that would give some people pause, and it gave him pause. You know, to the point he was afraid to appear in public. He got death threats. Uh, you know, and he he you know he. He said, uh, listen, I, nobody you know, deplores this crime more than I do, uh, and there's nothing to these rumors that, that Senator Conkling and I were involved, but um, he was greatly affected by it. There's one anecdote uh, that's from the, uh, one of the newspapers of the time where a reporter found um, Arthur uh, during this period when Garfield was lingering, sitting on a sofa uh, with his head bowed, staring out the window. 
And uh, when he heard the reporter enter the room, he looked up and his eyes were bloodshot. And uh, he, it was clear he'd been crying. When the reporter addressed him, the vice president uh, could barely talk. I mean, he said he was afraid uh, that if he said too much, his emotions would, would overcome him. He was in a stupor. And, you know, I think he was overwhelmed by the magnitude of the calamity. Uh, this was only the second president since Lincoln, you know, Lincoln being the first to be assassinated. And also, he was overcome by the, the enormity of the task that he, that he might have to perform. So this is how I think he began to transform. Uh, and also, the, again, the fact that Guteau had been motivated, at least in part, by this mistaken belief that he was entitled to a job, to uh, a spoils job, also energized opponents of the spoil system. They said, look, look what happens. You know, when we have this system where everyone who thinks they work on a campaign is entitled to a job. You know, you have this kind of craziness that happens. But the other interesting thing that happened that I, that I talk about a lot in the book is that just before Garfield died, Arthur got a letter from a, from a fellow New Yorker, a woman, um, a 31-year-old woman named Julia Sand. He'd never heard of, of Julia. She was the daughter of a German immigrant who had been president of the Metropolitan Gaslight Company, but he had, the, her father had died, and so she was living with her brother, who was a banker, um, in Manhattan. And she you know, was born into some wealth. She read French and, and vacationed in Saratoga and Newport. But she also suffered from some sort of kind of Victorian ailment. We're not really sure what it was, but she she was homebound much of the time. And so she took a keen, or while she was home, she she amused herself by reading all the newspapers and took a very keen interest in politics. And this was a time when women uh, were excluded from public life. They couldn't vote, let alone run for office. But she followed politics very closely through the newspapers, and she for whatever reason, became very interested in Chester Arthur uh, and seemed to know a lot about him uh, and his background. So she writes this letter, this first uh, letter to him shortly before Garfield dies. And she says, the hours of Garfield's life are numbered. Before this meets your eye, you may be president. The people are bowed in grief. But do you realize it? Not so much because he is dying as because you are his successor. (laughs) So then she goes on, what president ever entered office under circumstances so sad? The day he was shot, the thought rose in a thousand minds that you might be the instigator of the foul act. Is not that a humiliation which cuts deeper than any bullet can pierce? Your best friend said, Arthur must resign. He cannot accept office with such a suspicion resting upon him. And now your kindest opponents say, Arthur will try to do right. Adding gloomily, he won't succeed though. Making a man president cannot change him. But Julia Sand apparently didn't, didn't share that view because she's, she's writing this letter to encourage Arthur. She goes on, she says, but making a man president can change him. Great emergencies awaken generous traits which have lain dormant half a life. If there is a spark of true nobility in you, now is the occasion to let it shine. So that's so interesting to me because she seems to be saying, she says, you know, you had these generous traits that were have been dormant, though, that you were you were a better person, a different person when you were younger. And now it's time to now that this great responsibility has been thrust upon you, it's time to rise uh, to the occasion and to serve your country. And I think that these letters, which continued, by the way, over the next couple of years, there were 23 of them in all, and they're at the Library of Congress, really had a huge impact on, on Chester Arthur. Um, she gave him all kinds of political advice, much of which he father, followed. 
And also, um, he, he even paid her a surprise visit at her urging. So one day, the President of the United States just pulls up in his carriage and, and visits her to thank her for her letters and for believing in him. So I think there's, there's good reason to believe that, um, that he really valued this and that this sort of helped awaken in him um, you know, his conscience. What, what were some of the steps he took based on that that were reform-minded? Well, most importantly, what happened was there had been a civil service reform bill that had been languishing in co- in uh, Congress for years, and uh, at first, even even despite Garfield's assassination and all this this rising tide of uh, reform minded um, people, they had resisted uh, acting on this bill. But then, in eighteen eighty two, the Republicans suffered pretty serious reversals in those elections, and. This had become a big issue in the election, and the perception, the conventional wisdom was that they were being punished for the spoil system and for refusing to do away with it. And there, all of a sudden, there was this political momentum for the bill. And uh, Congress, uh, in in Arthur's uh, annual message, which we now call the State of the Union, he had called for this, for approval of this bill. And then finally, now it was uh, ripe, and the Congress did approve it, and Arthur signed it. So Strangely enough, this guy who was a creature of machine politics ends up signing this very important uh, bill that that did away or started to do away with the spoil system, the Pendleton Act, uh, and created what we now know as the civil service. And this was something specifically that um, that Julia Sand had asked him to do. She said she told him evasion in any form will be a proof of weakness. If you fight the rampant evil. Though more than half the country will back you, you will do it at your own risk. Are you a coward? Do you fear to face the same danger that Garfield faced? It is for you to choose. Are you content to sit like a snake charmer and let loathsome serpents coil about you, priding yourself on it that not one of them dare sting you? I would rather think of you like St. George in shining armor, striking death to the heart of the dragon. And that's what he, you know, incredibly, not only did he call for it in in his annual message, twice and signed the bill but but the bill uh as it was structured gave a lot of power to the president to to implement it uh and to appoint uh you know members of various uh committees and commissions that would that would um uh, be faithful to the law and he did that he he used his position instead of uh, using it to help his new york cronies he used it to push civil service reform and it really was the beginning of the system we have now the professional civil service and it really you could argue i would argue uh lays the groundwork for teddy roosevelt and the progressive presidents to follow and franklin roosevelt who who created a more active role for the federal government it's hard to believe that people that americans would have wanted a government uh, that was populated by hacks and and uh you know party hacks and unqualified people to do the sorts of things to take on the greater responsibilities that Teddy Roosevelt and the the subsequent presidents wanted it to take on if if there wasn't some confidence that, okay, there are some professionals here who know what they're doing. These people are qualified. They, uh, you know, they're they're working for the public and not for for their party. So with his successes as president, what really intrigued me was the 1884 election that comes next. By then, Arthur knows he is ill that he is dying, but he doesn't bow out of that contest. He instead kind of, it appears to me, he lets it die by neglect, his nomination. What was, what was his motivation of, of approaching that election in that way? Well, I think, uh, I think there were a lot of factors. I think he, you know, 
his wife uh, had died uh, shortly after he lost his job at the Custom House. So he's a, he's a widower. He's alone. Her death took a toll on him. Garfield's uh, months of agony, as I mentioned, that took a toll on him. The, the attacks in the press, that took a toll on him. He was been wounded deeply by all these things. And he was often uh, depressed and exhausted, suffered bouts of nausea. As it turned out, part of this, at least, was due to the fact that he had what was then called Bright's disease, which was a chronic inflammation of the blood vessels in the kidneys. That contributed to, to the nausea and the depression and the lethargy. So that was one factor, that he was, he was not well, and he wasn't sure how long he was going to live. The other, the other interesting thing, though, is that I think he, you know, he knew that he was an accidental president. And, part, and in part, he wanted his party to, to nominate him and to, to call him to serve again without him really doing the things that were generally expected of a president to win that support. So for example, as president, you know, yeah, he's not a machine politician anymore, but he has postmaster general, you know, jobs. He's got all kinds of jobs that he could hand out. And his supporters urged him at the convention, hey, look, we can trade these jobs for this this number of delegates. We can do this, you know, here's some money that this supporter uh, of yours wants to give to us uh, to spread around the convention floor. And Arthur, this is the new Arthur. Arthur says, you know what? I don't, that doesn't, that doesn't make me feel comfortable. I don't really want to use those tools to get the nomination. The other thing is that he, he, was, he was stuck between two, two poles, or as one uh, observer said, between two stools. On the one hand, the, the reformers still didn't trust him, despite what he had done. They were always um, suspicious of him, given his background. And the, the other side thought he was a traitor. Conkling and his, and his people thought that here's this guy, we made him. He ends up in the White House and he doesn't do anything for us. So he didn't, he didn't really have strong support on either side. And from the reformers' point of view, the half-breed's point of view, they felt that uh, a former senator named James Blaine, who was Conkling's big rival throughout their years on, on Capitol Hill, that it was his turn. He had run for president before and that they thought that he was the guy who could lead the Republicans to victory. And so um, he got the nomination. Blaine got the nomination and, and Arthur didn't. But it was interesting. I wonder whether if he had tried harder, he would have been able to get it because he was quite popular at mm-hmm. that point mm-hmm. with the public, if yeah. not with the members of the party or the different factions of the party. People were, you know, he benefited, I think, to some extent from low expectations. But, <laughs> you know, people thought, oh, wow, this guy's actually been great. He's been honest. You know, he's, he passed uh, civil service reform. You know, I think he he deserves it. But people, some very prominent people, Mark Twain among them, pr- praised Arthur as, you know, one of the best presidents we've ever had. But he didn't really have that party support. And he wasn't willing to do the backroom wheeling and dealing that would be uh, that would have been required in order for him to win the nomination. And again, he was he was not well, and he knew he was not well, even though uh, you know the public didn't know that. Okay. And he dies just what two years later in eighteen eighty six. That's right. And he made sure before then, though, that all of his most of his papers were destroyed. That's made I know your job and the job of other historians very difficult. Why why did he make that move to have all of his papers destroyed? Well there are there are pretty strong hints that he he did that because he was ashamed of what he had done as a politician before he was in the White House. And of course he had spent most of his political life uh, you know, greasing the machine. So there was a lot to be ashamed of. So uh, you know shortly after he left office he was on vacation uh in New London, Connecticut, he was hoping that the the sea air would help him. And while he was there, he, um, you know, he had time to reflect on his life and his career. 
And he told told one visitor they regretted much of what he'd done in politics before he reached the White House. And he also he told his son Alan that he, he that he didn't want him to follow the same path that the price of power uh, was too high. And then shortly after that vacation in New London, when he returned to Manhattan, he summoned one of his old uh, custom house uh, cronies, a guy named uh, Jimmy Smith, and told him that uh, he wanted him to find three large barrels and to take uh, all of his uh, personal official papers from that that period when he was uh, at the height of his power as a machine politician and and burn them. And what he did. So all... Nearly every record of Arthur's political career before the White House was reduced to ashes. But interestingly enough, one of the uh, sets of papers that he specifically asked them to spare were the letters from Julius Sand, which is the other reason why I think it's you know there's a strong case to be made that that she really had an impact on him. Those letters are still at the Library of Congress. Those twenty three letters, and we don't know whether he ever returned any of the letters. None of those survive if he did. Um, and frankly, we don't know. Maybe she wrote more than twenty three. But those, there are twenty three letters from her at the Library of Congress, which is uh, which is really. I mean, it's fascinating to read these letters. She's just a very colorful writer, and uh, and she seems to have a real insight into his character and what he was feeling. So after you've done this research, Scott, and, and written a really terrific book. How would you summarize Arthur's legacy today? Well, I think, uh, you know, first of all, civil service reform, uh, for sure. As I said, the establishment of a professional civil service, uh, you know, create a competent bureaucracy and, and then, you know, thereby laying the groundwork for a, a larger federal government with more responsibilities. The other thing he did, which I haven't mentioned yet, which is very important, is he laid the keel for the modern Navy. At that point, many Americans didn't see why we even had to have a Navy. Uh, the European powers were an ocean away. America had no overseas colonies to defend. And so the, since the War of 1812, the Navy's principal mission had been to protect uh, American shores, its harbors and whatnot. And it wasn't expected to go, the ships weren't expected to venture too far from shore, but the Navy had really deteriorated since uh, the Civil War and it was inferior to the European navies, but also uh, the navies of some Latin American countries. Uh, most of the uh, most of the ships were made of wood, whereas other countries were rapidly constructing steel navies. And so Arthur really started us down the road of or on a course of uh, of creating a modern navy, and that was a huge uh, part of his legacy. And uh, you know, it was the navy that he started to build that then Teddy Roosevelt uh, sent around the world and launched America as a world power. And then also, I think just the i think it's it's difficult for us to understand just how horrified and scared the country was at that moment of garfield's uh assassination you know there was this split in the in one of the two parties you know and, and this these rumors swirling around i mean this was really potentially a constitutional crisis people feared i mean imagine if the, if the vice president of the united states really had conspired to kill the president of the united states i mean people were were terrified, and he and they were, you know, particularly terrified and and uh, worried because of the guy who was uh, happened to be taking over. But he really rose to the occasion, and, and really by by acting uh, honorably and responsibly, led the country through a through a harrowing moment. You know, after he um, after he died in eighteen ninety nine, some of his uh, friends had him uh had a statue of him uh put in Madison Square Park in Manhattan it's still there and interestingly enough there's also a statue of Conkling across the way <laughs> <clears throat> but um so the the uh one of the speakers the featured speaker was uh 
uh, Elihu Root, who was Arthur's personal lawyer, but also later served in the um, William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt administrations. And, and Root, um, you know, he began his speech by recalling that summer of 1881 when Garfield was on his deathbed and the, there was this strife in the Republican Party and this horror and rage in the, in the public about uh, this assassination. And he said, dark suspicions and angry threatenings filled the public mind. And for the moment, there was doubt, grave doubt and imminent peril that the orderly succession of power under the Constitution might not take its peaceful course. But in Arthur, Root said, our ever-fortunate republic had again found the man for the hour. Arthur recognized that the moment Garfield died, he was no longer a leader of a faction, but the president of the whole people, conscious of all his obligations and determined to execute the people's will. So I think that that also is part of his legacy and one of his contributions, that he helped, he helped lead the country during a, during a uh, really, or lead the country through a very frightening period. Now, at this point, Scott, I typically ask a few short personal questions about the POTUS we're discussing. And admittedly, I occasionally struggle with finding some good juicy tidbits to dive into, but not this time. (laughs) Jester Arthur was chock full of personality. So here we go. (laughs) He was one of several chief executives to be both president and general. Which title meant the most to him? You know, I think this this maybe is surprising. I think general. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, he came to view politics as kind of a dirty business. But I think he was always proud of his service during the Civil War, and he was, uh, you know, when many people were taking advantage of their positions to enrich themselves, he didn't. He served honorably, and um, I think he'd be most most proud of that. That goes along with several other presidents. Yeah, yeah it does, and generals as well. All right, Arthur had several pretty pretty good nicknames. The Dude President, Gentleman Boss, and Prince Arthur, just to name a few. Did he like any of these? You know, I don't know. I think he might have liked them, actually. I mean, he took great pride in the finer things. He was a Manhattan sophisticate. He he had his coats and his hats imported from London. Uh, he owned at least 80 pairs of trousers, reportedly. Uh, during one eight-month uh, period, he spent uh, about $2,600 in today's dollars just on hats. Um, he wanted the best of everything. Uh, and he, he also that, you know, that applied to the food and drink served, uh, both before he was in the white house and as president. And, uh, you know, I think he, but at the same time, and this sort of, uh, applies to the, his nickname as the gentleman boss, you know, in addition to his appreciation for first rate food and drink, he also, he carried himself in a certain way and he treated others, uh, as a gentleman, as, you know, treated others uh, as a gentleman should his manners were even in an age when manners really mattered his his stood out his were impeccable one person wrote uh, it's not that he's handsome and agreeable for he was both long ago one admirer wrote but it's his ease polish and perfect manner that makes him the greatest society lion we have had in many years so but at the same time he wasn't a snob he liked to walk uh, through the streets of washington on his own or with friends and he would always raise his hat and bow to to whoever he met, even if they were, uh, uh, laborers. So, um, so I think, uh, those, those are good nicknames for him. And I think he would like those nicknames. Yeah. It sounds like he was friends to just about everybody. He was, everyone loved Chester Arthur. Now along the, that kind of same line, he also paid special attention to the white house decor who helped him spruce up the executive mansion. 
He did. Before he moved into the White House, he launched a major renovation. And under his direction, there were 24 wagon loads of furniture and carpets and drapes. Some from the uh, Adams, the John Adams administration, not even John Quincy Adams, were hauled away and sold at a public auction. So it was due for an updating. And uh, fortunately, Arthur was friendly with um, Louis Tiffany's father, the noted jeweler, Charles Louis Tiffany. And this is the Tiffany from Tiffany's, which existed at the time. And the younger Tiffany had just finished renovating a room at uh, the armory, which still exists, the Park Avenue Armory in, in Manhattan, and was becoming well known for that. And so Arthur brought him on to decorate the White House uh, public spaces. So he transformed, Tiffany transformed many parts of the a mansion that had been outdated. And, and the most famous thing that he did was create a 50-foot jeweled glass screen that had imitation marble columns. And he, Tiffany designed that to replace uh, some old glass doors that had separated the, uh, the main corridor of the White House from, from another section. Um, sadly, those screens are no longer with us because they were removed when Teddy Roosevelt renovated the White House again in 1902. And uh, that that famous, beautiful screen was sold at auction as boxes of glass. And then it was installed in a hotel in Chesapeake Beach, Maryland. And then the hotel was destroyed by fire in 1923. And that was the end of the screen. So so we don't have it. We just have pictures, black and white photographs. But yes, he and, and Arthur took a, a great interest, a keen interest in the renovations. He was very um, hands-on. Now, just like Arthur, you know, we enjoy a, at American POTUS, we enjoy a good cocktail every now and then. Now, what was his favorite cocktail? Did he have a go-to drink? I don't know. You know, he drank as a lot of people then did uh, a lot of whiskey. That was uh, whiskey was very cheap and plentiful and popular. But I got to say Manhattan uh, because, hey, he was a Manhattan guy. Yeah. And that's <laughs> around the time the Manhattan was invented. I, I'd be surprised if, uh, if Chester didn't uh, put back a Manhattan or two. Scott, do you have a favorite quote or moment from his time in, in office? Well, I think there's a. It's kind of a funny quote. He's not. He's not the most quotable uh, president. It's tough to find good ones. But there was one occasion where uh, he was meeting from. Uh, he was meeting with um, uh, visitors to the White House, which at the time, I mean, uh, it was part of a president's job. People could just line up and and line up to meet the president. So he he resented uh, the fact that uh, citizens, ordinary people, could basically just come into his house whenever they wanted to. And he he tried very hard to protect his children, especially his young daughter from the prying eyes of the public. He departed from that, uh, the tradition that had been developed uh, since Andrew Jackson, that the, that the kids of the president were sort of public property. And so when someone challenged him on this, he said, uh, and this was widely reported, he said, Madam, I may be president of the United States, but my private life is nobody's damn business. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of a funny quote. <laughs> that is terrific. Yeah. Scott, we've really enjoyed this conversation. What's what's next for you, and where can our listeners go to learn more about your work? Well, uh, you know, I'm fishing around for another uh, another uh, book idea uh, at the time, in addition to my uh, day job. And um, you know, I'm fascinated by the the Gilded Age is such an un, relatively unexamined age. I think you know, I think for many of us, we in school we learn a lot about the Civil War and a little about Reconstruction, and then we jump very quickly to um, to Teddy Roosevelt and 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 um, World War One, et cetera, et cetera, and I think this is there are a lot of great characters um, from this period, and uh, and it really was the beginning of of America as we know it during this period. You know these, uh, you know the rise of large corporations and modern transportation and, and industry and all these things, and um, I just think it's a fascinating period. So I may try to find something else in that 
in that era. That's true. When you do, remember American POTUS and join us again. That'd be terrific. Well, thank you again, Scott, for joining us, and uh, best of luck to you in your future endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS Podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens and participates in the podcast. More information on today's guest and his terrific book called The Unexpected Presidency can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there, we'd love to see your questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. Graphic design for American POTUS is by the Thought Bureau. An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Chester Arthur, quote, Since I came here, I have learned that Chester A. Arthur is one man, and the President of the United States is another.